thank you for listening to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. This is Real Sports Talk for the Real Sports Fan. And I definitely appreciate all you Real Sports fans who are listening right now. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please do me a huge favor and leave this podcast a five-star rating. That one, two, three, four, fifth. That five-star rating review will definitely be appreciated. If you're listening on any other platform, that could be Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Podomatic, wherever. Please share from that platform so that your friends and family can see the podcast, listen to the podcast, love the podcast, subscribe, and then share with their friends and family. I'm trying to get this podcast to the highest levels of podcastivity, and I definitely need your help to get there. It'll be truly, truly appreciated. Now, this podcast is coming a couple of days late. I do apologize for that, but it will be worth the wait as we have a huge episode for you. A lot of basketball to get into as Carmelo Anthony announced his retirement formally. So what's his legacy in the NBA and in basketball in general? We have the Denver Nuggets punching their ticket to the NBA Finals. Got to get into that. Got the Heat up 3-1 on the Boston Celtics. Looks like they're going to punch their way into the NBA Finals very soon. But of course, we got to start the show with boxing. Now, if this is your first time listening to me, I'm a huge boxing fan. I don't watch just the big fights. I watch the small fights. I watch the medium fights. I watch all the fights in between. But we had a big one this past Saturday between Devin Haney and Vasil Lamachenko as Devin Haney was attempting to defend his undisputed lightweight championship against Vasil Lamachenko on ESPN pay-per-view. Top-ranked promoted fight. And the fact that we got this fight was a win for boxing. And it looks like we're moving into a direction of getting all the fights that we want to get. Now, of course, there's going to be fights here and there that you don't get, right? It's never going to be perfect because boxing isn't looked over by one person. There's not a person that has the whole sport under an umbrella like the UFC with Dana White. There's not a boxing commissioner. So you're never going to have it be perfect. But it is moving in a way where boxing fans are getting the fights they want, which will bring in more casual fans per fight. And maybe you'll create and you'll generate more diehard fans like myself with fights like this. And you have to give respect to Devin Haney for taking this fight. Gotta remember, a few years ago, Devin Haney had the, I believe at the time, WBC regular belt, right? And Vasil Amachenko had the WBC franchise belt. Now, if you're not a boxing fan, you're like, why would the WBC have two belts in the same weight class? If you're asking that question, it's a very good question. And I agree with you about asking that question. Don't get me started on the sanctioning bodies with their multiple titles, just trying to find ways to get 3% of the purse. Right, that's basically that's what it is. It's a money grab when they do that. But because you had that, Devin Haney was the quote unquote mandatory for Vasil Lamachenko at that time. Now at that time, Vasil Lamachenko was a top rank, he's been a top rank this whole time. Devin Haney has moved around a bit. At that time he was with the zone, I believe under Matchroom, with Eddie Hearn. So the easier fights to make at that time was Vasil Lamachenko versus Teofimo Lopez. Vasil Lamachenko lost his belts to Teofimo Lopez. Teofimo Lopez lost his belts to George Cambosis. 
And then George Cambosis lost his belts to Devin Haney. Devin Haney defended it in a rematch against George Cambosis. And now we're here where he was defending against Vasil Lomachenko. He didn't have to take this fight. He could have been petty. He could have said, yo, I was your mandatory. We could have tried harder to make that fight happen. I know I was quote unquote across the street, but we've seen it happen. Ryan Garcia, Javante Tank Davis made it happen. You see Deontay Wilder, Tyson Fury make it happen. You can make these fights happen if you truly, truly want the fights really bad. And the fighters have to remember that they are ultimately the bosses in the situation. The fighters are the ones going in there putting their bodies on the line. Putting their records on the line. They're the ones going through these grueling training camps to make these weights. They have to know that they're the ones in charge and they want a fight to happen. Push for it to happen. Now again, it's not perfect. It's not always going to happen, but it should happen more than it doesn't. When it comes to the fights that the boxing fans want to see. And this is one that they wanted to see. And I do have to commend Devin Haney for making this fight happen. Now, Devin Haney was the winner of this fight by unanimous decision. 116-112 and 115-113 on two cards. And there was a big outcry about this fight being a robbery. Lomachenko was robbed of the rightful decision per the perspective of a lot of fans out there. If you you know look at social media now, you gotta be careful. Social media doesn't represent everybody, and a lot of times you can see people just joining the trend at the time, and the trend was to say that Lomachenko was robbed. So before we even get into the details of the fight, let's define what a robbery is in boxing. So there's a few different ways a boxer can get robbed, and it does happen. There are robberies that happen, but it is a very overused word in not just boxing, but sports period, but especially boxing. A robbery in boxing is when it comes to a judge's decision. If you could point to seven rounds that a boxer clearly won, like there's no debate, these seven rounds, this boxer won, and then the other boxer is awarded the decision, that's a robbery, right? If you could point to at least seven rounds, if you could say boxer A won rounds one through six and round 11, at least seven rounds where they clearly won, but somehow the judges saw it the other way, that's a robbery. Another way a boxer can get robbed is if the referee makes a horrible stoppage. We saw that the previous week where Raleigh Romero got a gift of a win against Ismael Barrazo. Ismael Barrazo was ahead on the cards when Tony Weeks stopped the fight. And Barrazo wasn't hurt. He wasn't in danger. He was very much fighting, protecting himself, had his hands up, throwing punches back. And Raleigh Romero wasn't really landing punches. Tony Weeks had a very, very bad night at the office. Very bad night at the office. Stopped the fight. Ismael Barrazo was ahead on the cards. Raleigh Romero got the title. That right there is a robbery. Ismael Barrazo was robbed of a 140-pound world title. That's where the outrage should be. That was a robbery. 
something should be done to right that wrong. That was a robbery. Now, with this fight, I feel like a lot of people right before the fight saw that Lomachenko was the underdog and put money on Lomachenko, lost that money, and now they're crying robbery. Now, if you believe that Vasil Lomachenko won seven rounds, I can see that. I can see 115-113 Loma. A lot of people were upset about the card that was scored 116-112. I wasn't as mad about that because it's literally one more round. And there weren't seven clear rounds for Loma. So when you look at this fight, I watched it initially. I watched the fight. I was at a wedding reception, so I couldn't lock in like I normally would. Wasn't able to score the fight at that time. But even watching it on my phone as things are going on around me, I could tell this is a great fight. This is a fight that's going to be very hard to score. People are going to be upset at whoever wins this fight. Now, I do believe if Loma would have won, there would have been people coming out saying Haney should have won. That would have been the outcry. Whoever would have won, the opposite outcry would have been the one heard on social media. But again, watching that a wedding, couldn't really lock in. So the next morning, I watched it again. And I scored round by round. And I scored it 114-114. I had it a draw. And there were at least four or five rounds you could point to that could go either way, which they call swing rounds. So if you have five swing rounds and the other fighter didn't win the other seven, clearly, there's no robbery. The decision can go either way, depending on what the judge is looking for, what the judge likes. Right? And one thing that tends to stand out when you're watching these type of fights is when the fighter gets clear shots, clear punches go in, right? And with a fighter like Devin Haney, because his arms are so long, his punches do look better when they land. Like for most fighters, their body shots don't stand out like that because they're on the inside. Maybe sometimes they have them against the ropes and they're not really generating a lot of power in those body shots. With Devin Haney, his body shots stood out because a lot of them were counter punches, which always stand out, always look better. A lot of those body shots came from a long range. And there are ones that you could clearly see. Lomachenko would do the thing where he's trying to find the angle. And as soon as he tries to make that little sidestep, Devin Haney hits him with the right hand to the body. Boom, one that you see and that you make makes you hurt a little bit. You're like, oh, okay, I felt that. That looked like it hurt a little bit. Those shots stood out. And also in the rounds where Lamachenko wasn't as busy, Devin Haynes gonna have to edge because he's gonna throw that jab, gonna throw his right hands to the body. He has some really good hooks that he landed to the head as well. So if Loma isn't busy like he was in rounds eight through eleven. When he's not throwing those punches and bunches, he's not throwing those combinations, he's trying to find angles, and he's not throwing punches, those rounds are going to be hard for him to win. Especially against a fighter who does a great job of landing clear, clean punches like Devin Haney does. Devin Haney did enough to hold on to his belt in this one. 
Lomachenko, I don't believe, did enough to take the belts in this one. Now, I mentioned rounds 8 through 11. Lomachenko, late in the fight, got it turned on, right? And the rounds that he won were more impressive than the rounds Haney won. I will say that, right? But a lot of people, when they watch boxing, aren't scoring it round by round. They're just watching the fight. So if someone goes on a string of winning three straight rounds, four straight rounds towards the end of the fight, and those rounds are clear for that person, they're going to say, oh, they won the fight, because that's the last thing they saw. And those rounds stood out. Kind of reminds me of last year when Amanda Serrano took on Katie Taylor. Katie Taylor won more rounds. But at the end of the fight, people were saying, oh, Amanda Serrano was robbed. Amanda Serrano, the rounds that she won were very impressive. She won those rounds clearly. But Katie Taylor, in that 10-round fight, won six rounds compared to the four clear rounds that Amanda won. Because Amanda has more power, those rounds are more impressive because she was able to hurt Katie Taylor in a couple of those rounds. So that's what you remember. You're like, ooh, remember that time where she punched her and her girl started stumbling a little bit? That's what stands out if you're not scoring it round by round. But then if you go back and watch it, you're like, oh, Katie Taylor clearly won six rounds of those ten. In this case, it was 12 rounds, so you need somebody to clearly win seven in that way. And no one did. I thought that six rounds apiece for each fighter and Vasil Amashiko had the more clear rounds that he won. It's easier to point to those rounds and say he won those for sure, but it wasn't seven. Now, what is it that both fighters could have done differently? Devin Haney didn't use his jab enough. Now, I get it that he's going against a southpaw. When you're a right-handed fighter and you're going against a southpaw, that jab isn't going to be as effective, right? But I still thought he should have used it more. He should have tried to keep Lomachenko on the defensive a bit more. And in the late rounds, excluding the 12th round, rounds 8 through 11, you saw Lomachenko like, okay, he's not going to throw that jab. I can attack from that angle on Haney's left and make it hard for him to counter from that position because he's not throwing the left hand as much. That's something that Haney could have done better is throw the jab out there more and then once you miss that jab, follow up with a straight right hand, a hook, throw combinations to keep Lomachenko on the defensive. Lomachenko, you've seen this story before. Why do you wait so long to really get in your bag? We know you're the Matrix. We know you're good at using angles and getting fighters discombobulated. Next thing you know, you're on their side and you're hitting them with combinations. Why not start the fight from that point? Download the data sooner. It seems like Falomachenko is a very smart boxer, very high boxing IQ. Both of these fighters are. And that's why it was so hard to score. But with Loma, he waited until the eighth round to really turn it on. And then didn't close it. Does that sound familiar? Teofimo Lopez, he lost that fight because he waited until the seventh round in that one to really get going and then didn't close it out strong in the 12th round. Same thing here. Now the difference is you can argue for a few early rounds for Lomachenko 
unlike in the Teofimo Lopez fight, he truly didn't win any rounds one through six. You could make an argument for maybe one of those rounds, but Teofimo Lopez, because I guess his power or something of that aspect, had Loma a bit, I wouldn't say scared, but a bit just cautious of going in at first. Same with Haney. Haney doesn't have the power to take from a Lopez, but he does have great boxing IQ, good counter-punching ability, and those body shots, even if Loma didn't show us it hurt, it, it had to hurt. It had to, because it was clean shots to the body from that right hand, right? So both fighters, when they go back and look at it, can point to things they did wrong and how the fight is being disputed because they didn't do those things. Devin Haney, throw more combinations, keep Lomachenko on the defensive a bit more. And don't be so scared of Lomachenko countering you because you have the length, six inch reach advantage. Stay at that range, make it very hard for Loma to counter you. Even if you miss, he's outside of range, he can't hit you back. But Lomachenko, you should have started attacking earlier. And maybe you get that decision. And you can't let the 12th round be disputed in a fight that you know is close. Again, you made that same mistake against Taylor Fima Lopez. Taylor Lopez closed out that 12th round in a major way. And you lost that fight because of it. Same here. If Loma wins the 12th round, this is a draw. And then there's even more pressure for a rematch. So again, not a robbery. I have no problem with Haney winning. 116-112 isn't that crazy. It's not. Because you can point to eight rounds that you believe Haney won. Not a lock. There's not clear eight rounds for Haney or clear seven rounds for Haney. It's not clear on either side. It was a very good fight. And there's one thing that's getting lost here. This was a great fight between two great fighters. And I can't wait to see what happens next. And we're going to get into what the options are going forward for both fighters right after the music break. Your songs, niggas been doing your wrong, family been doing your wrong. 
On days you feeling like you on your own, I wrote this for you to put on. Thank you for sharing your light, your voice, and writing them beautiful poems. Session 32, bring me to tears, be getting choked up when I hear it. Seem like I keep crying off so much since a nigga had these kids. And I don't know what it is that made me so sensitive, more than I already was. Whenever my nap, I'm back, I'm sending you this little audio hug. And hopes that you smile, forgetting the stress that piles from all the above. The more that we hurt, the harder we love. As soon as it's gone, we gotta re-up. It's just like a drug. If people knew half of the pressure, they know that it's hard to be her. I'm sending you scissors and Ari, my love. Y'all holding us down, y'all holding us the crowns, you ever need something from me, don't hesitate, please, just hit me and I'll be around, I'm gone. Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break. So now let's talk about what's next or what options are out there to be next for Devin Haney and Vassil Lamachenko. Let's start with Devin Haney. So I put five possibilities down for Devin Haney and Vassil Lamachenko on what could be next for them. Number one option, rematch against Vassil Lamachenko. I do think a rematch would be awesome. It would be one that people would want to see. It would generate a lot of money. And it's also a good legacy play. Now, I watched the pivot when Devin Haney was being interviewed. He talked about how he wants to be one of the greats when he's done. He wants to be one of those guys that's mentioned with Muhammad Ali, Floyd Mayweather, with the all-time greats at the end of the day. And you can make a lot of money in boxing and do it that way and not take on the greats. He said he wants to take on the greats and the money will come along with that. And that's what we're seeing now. He sacrificed by going over to Australia and beating George Cambosis twice and taking less money the first time around to be in a position he's in now where he can somewhat call the shots. He was able to call the shots against the son Lamachenko. He would call it in the rematch. And it's one that will be even bigger this time around than the first time around. And if he's hearing all of the chatter out there and he wants to prove that he's a better fighter, go ahead and take that fight. Now, Vasil Lamachenko is 35, but definitely didn't show any signs of being you know, past his prime in this fight. But the chances of him slowing down between this fight and the next one are up there, right? He hasn't taken a lot of punishment as a professional because he started off late because he has such a long amateur career. But eventually age does catch up with you. So maybe Haney catches him in the right spot and is able to win the rematch in a more convincing fashion. Now, if he doesn't want to fight Vasil Lomachenko again, there are some other options. Javante Tank Davis. Now, Javante Davis would want that fight at 135. I'm pretty sure... Tank would want all the belts because that's one thing that Tank has heard. That Tank hasn't really fought for world titles in a minute, right? He has a secondary belt at 135. He has a, I believe he has a secondary belt at 140. But he hasn't been a world champion in a while. He's very popular. He's definitely among the best. But it's hard to put him on the pound for pound list, which I might do my 
top 10 pound for pound next week. It's hard to put him on the pound for pound list when he doesn't have a world championship or hasn't been a world champion in a while. Tank is coming off of knocking out Ryan Garcia in the biggest fight of the year as far as the eyes that were on it. Devin Haney, Javante Tank Davis, major, major money in that one. Major, major legacy play in that one. I would love to see it. Both fighters go in with hesitation on knowing that they can win because Javante Tank Davis has that kind of power that only takes one shot. And Devin Haney has to be wary of that. Devin Haney has this type of skill to where maybe he can keep someone like Javante Davis from landing that one big shot. Uh, Javante Davis is very explosive, but he doesn't really throw combinations in that way the way Loma does. So the way that Loma was able to give Devin Haney issues with those combinations and with using angles. Javante Davis is also a very, very smart boxer, but just doesn't fight in that way. So because of his style and lack of combination punching, Devin Haney may have the edge in that one. Some people may think I'm crazy about saying that because all we've seen from Javante Davis is him knock people out and be able to adjust and find ways to win. Devin Haney, all we've seen from him is being able to win. Even if you think he lost to Loma, it was a close fight and where you can't say he clearly lost, if you're being honest. So that one would be very, very good. A very good fight to see. Third option, staying at 135. Shakur Stevenson. Now, Shakur Stevenson, if you've heard me talk about him before, you know how I feel about him for you, the ones that are new out there. Shakur Stevenson, I believe, will go down as one of the greatest of all time. He's that special of a talent. Someone who can walk you down if need be, jab you down, he can throw combinations, he can be on a defensive fight off the back foot. There's nothing he can't do. And then his last fight showed that he can sit down on his punches. And when he does sit down on those punches, can hurt you at 135. That's scary. If he's getting stronger and more punching power with age, that's going to be scary. Because that's the only thing he was missing. Now, he, he's never going to have Javante Tank Davis power. Or even a Teofimo Lopez type power. But if he's sitting down on his punches and being able to wear you down over the fight by his power, along with all the other skills that he brings, I don't see anybody at 130, 135, or 140 beating Shakur Stevenson. Now, Devin Haney may believe he has the right set of tools to beat Shakur Stevenson. But that's a scary fight. But it's also one that would generate a lot of money. A lot of interest from both diehards and casuals. Great fight. Now, Devin Haney is a bigger fighter at 135. We've seen him look drained at some of these weigh-ins. He's been able to make weight, even ironically, weighed less than Vasil Lomachenko at weigh-in, right? But we know that he's growing into his body, growing into his man body as we call it. You know, he's 24 years old now, so it's going to be hard for him to make 135 as he gets older. Honestly, if he does one more fight at 135, or two more, I'll be shocked at two more. I think he has maybe one more fight at 135 left in him. 
But if he decides to move up to 140 at this point, I wouldn't blame him. And it wouldn't be him ducking because we know how hard it is for him to make that type of weight. So if he, does, if he does move up to 140, what are some of the options there? This first option at 140 is a selfish one on my point. It's something that I want to see. I want to see Devin Haney go to 140 and take Raleigh Romero's title. <laughs> Raleigh Romero, I mentioned it earlier, was gifted a 140-pound world title and a horrible, horrible mistake. I would love to see Devin Haney go up to 140 and just demolish Raleigh Romero. And I believe he would demolish him. That would be one that's clear. A clear victory. Fatality. Finish him. That would be that type of fight. Raleigh Romero, I don't think, provides any type of challenge for Devin Haney. Uh, only thing that Devin Haney have to worry about that Raleigh Romero does have power. But I just don't see a skill set there where Devin Haney doesn't win this fight. 10 rounds to 2, 11 to 1. Easy victory for him there. And as a business decision, this is going. Riley Romero can talk a good game. Not the most creative trash talker, but he's willing to talk trash. Has a decent following. I believe you can make a pay-per-view. And next thing you know, you're a champ at 140. And then you can move on and try to become undisputed at 140. It's a lot of big fights there, right? If you don't take on Roger Romero first, maybe you take on the winner of Josh Taylor, Teofimo Lopez. They're set to fight on June 10th, right? Coming up very soon. Another big fight that boxing fans are going to get the pleasure of seeing this, this year. Him and Teofimo Lopez have a beat. So Teofimo Lopez beats Josh Taylor. That's a very easy fight to build. These two guys truly don't like each other and have it for years now. Pay-per-view worthy fight. I would take Devin Haney over Tatum Lopez. But it is a very tough fight. One that might be hard to score. And people might think it's a quote-unquote robbery when it's done. So my five options for Devin Haney. Vasil Lamachenko in the rematch. Javante Davis. Shakur Stevenson. Roderick Romero. That's just me being petty. But I would love to see somebody just go ahead and take that belt from Roderick Romero. And stop the madness. Or the winner of Josh Taylor versus Tefimo Lopez. Now for Vasil Lomachenko, he's not moving up. 135 is the biggest that he's going to get. He may even move back down to 130 at one point. But 135 is as heavy as he's going to be. Some of the options. Of course, number one, try to get a rematch with Devin Haney. Again, big money fight. Big legacy fight for both guys. I would love to see it. Option number two, Shakur Stevenson. Easy fight to make. They're both at top rank. Shakur Stevenson wants to prove himself as someone who deserves a title shot at 135. If he beats Vasil Lomachenko, which I would pick Shakur Stevenson in that fight, then Devin Haney, it would be hard for Devin Haney to avoid Shakur Stevenson at that point if he stays at 135. Option number three, Javante Davis. Javante Davis versus Vasil Lomachenko is a big money fight. It'll be one that people are very interested in. Uh, we haven't seen Lomachenko be knocked out. We've seen him knocked down before, but not knocked out. And with both guys being around the same size, it'll be one that'll be very interesting if Javante Davis can handle the punching load and combinations of Lomachenko. Does Lomachenko leave himself open for one of those body shots? Devin Haney landed a lot of body shots. 
Javante Davis lands those same body shots, you can find yourself being knocked out on the ground holding your stomach the same way Ryan Garcia was. That's a very interesting one. Big money fight right there. Uh, fourth option, William Zapata. He's another guy at 135 who's on the come up. Very good fighter. Option number five, Frank Martin. Another guy who's coming up, making a lot of noise, calling out a lot of people. That'll be a big time fight. So the five options for Vasil Lamachenko, Devin Haney, Shakur Stevenson, Javante Davis, William Zapata, Frank Martin. Man, I'm so excited about what could happen next for these fighters. And if you are someone who's looking to get into boxing more, not just watch the big fights, this weekend's a very good weekend for boxing on the zone. We have Mauricio Laura versus Lee Wood. Now, this is a rematch. I believe, um, forgetting which weight class it is right now, excuse me for that. Uh, but it is for a title at one of the smaller weight classes. Not super small, it's not like bantamweight. Um, but Mauricio Laura knocked out Lee Wood in the first fight. Lee Wood fought a perfect fight for six rounds. In the seventh round, he messed up, stayed in range too long, got caught with a nasty, nasty left hook. Um, if you look at my Instagram, I believe my reaction to this fight is still up there, to the original one. And I have it playing behind me, the knockout, and it's so nasty. Caught him perfectly with a left hook, knocked him out. So in this rematch, can Lee Wood continue to box the perfect fight, stay at range, throw the combinations, counter, or does he get caught by Laura's power? Does Laura make adjustments to where it's not Lee Wood winning all the rounds before the knockout? This is very interesting. It's going to take place early because it's over there in England. So I believe if you're on the West Coast, turn on the zone at like 11 a.m. and you'll catch the whole card. Another fight going on on the zone, this one's going to take place at night, is Alexis Rocha versus Anthony Young. Uh, Rocha is someone who's going to come up at 147. You can find, you may hear his name in the next few months when it comes to fighting for a world title at 147. There was an announcement. Hopefully it stays true, but it seems like we're really going to get Errol Spence versus Terrence Crawford. And once that's settled at 147 for the Undisputed, I see that both of those guys moving on, right? If Errol Spence wins and he wins convincingly, I can see him moving up to 154. Same with Terrence Crawford. I can see him moving on to 154. Especially if Terrence Crawford wins convincingly, him and Jamel Charlo have been barking for years now. He's going to want to fight Jamel Charlo and have Undisputed versus Undisputed, which would be major, crazy. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. We don't know who's going to win that fight. That's definitely a 50-50 bout, which you know I'll do a detailed preview of. Not only will I write an article, but do a detailed preview here on the podcast as well. So let's go ahead and take our next music break when we come back. Talk some basketball. We'll be right back. I'm 
3,000 degrees. I ain't worried about them Oceans over there, but they worry about me. I got a homeboy named Butter and another homeboy that named Cheese. Well, with me, baby, I make it milk till it drip down your knees. This shit for real low, brain real low. Kiddo say he looks up to me, this just makes me feel old. Never thought that we could become someone else's hero. Man, we were just in the food court eating goddamn rolls yesterday. That's the way. Every single morning I try to pray. Grandmama and them, they never forgot. Nothing else really mean nothing to me. I ain't stunned to be. Talking to me. Girl, why you up with me? Move on, ain't nothing to see. Always from the song, I'm the wrong, off the rip. Cause of him, all of them will remember the men. Not they fell in love with rap. Black like having your cousin back. Blue like when that man is do. Cream like when I'm dead. Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break. So now let's get into a little basketball. We had one of the greatest small fours of all time formally announced his retirement this week as Carmelo Anthony put out this great video talking about his legacy and how now it's his son's turn to take that mantle and run with it. Great, great video. I love what I saw there. And of course, it made you think about what's the legacy of Carmelo Anthony, right? And you have to start with college. That one year at Syracuse where he went and won a national title for Syracuse and was, of course, the best player on that team. That definitely is part of the legacy of Carmelo, which led to him being the third pick in the 2003 NBA draft. And that's one of the greatest drafts of all time. When you have arguments about what's the greatest NBA draft of all time, Carmelo's name will be brought up. If you're arguing for 2003, you can say three of the top five picks in that draft are on the NBA's 75th anniversary team with LeBron, Carmelo, and Dwayne Wade. Four out of the top five are Hall of Famers, are future first battle Hall of Famers with LeBron, Carmelo, Chris Bosh, and Dwayne Wade. And that draft's very top-heavy. There definitely are some good names after that. But it's not as deep, in my opinion, as 96 or 1984. But because it's so top-heavy, it does have an argument. And looking at some of the other names in that draft, you know, you got... Chris Kamen, good career. Uh, Kirk Heinrich, good career. Luke Rittenauer, good career. David West, very long, good career. You know, Kendrick Perkins, 
people like to make fun of him, but a very good career as a role player. Uh, Steve Blake was in the second round of that draft. Very long career. Uh, Willie Green, head coach for the New Orleans Pelicans now. Good career in that draft. Kyle Corver was deep in the second round of that draft. Very long career for him. So good draft, or great draft, excuse me, and definitely is in the argument for the best all time, and that's part of Carmelo's legacy. The fact that he's a main part of that argument. You could say, man, Carmelo was the third pick of that draft. And of course, it makes people think about what would have happened if they would have picked Carmelo over Darko Milicic, right? And with Darko, the stories about his draft workouts have become legend. Where it was like, dude, if you would have saw it, you would have understood. <laughs> you just had to be there. The dude was had everything, man. He he looked like the you know Dirk Nowinski. He looked like the players we see now at his size, with all the skill sets, and it just didn't work out. So I'm not gonna, you know, hit Detroit over the head for making that pick. But man, Carmelo on those Pistons teams, I think would have been awesome. Now, is he able to put up the stats he puts up in Detroit that he put up in Denver? I don't think so, because they already were set. Does he start over Tayshaun Prince right away? And is the team the same? Tayshaun. Of course, it's not as good as Carmelo, but he provided a very distinct skill set with his length, his defense, and then what he was able to do. Carmelo was never known for his defense. I'm not saying the man was horrible on the defensive end, but definitely wasn't his strength. His strength was scoring that basketball. And he did it well right away. And he did it well, but he also did it in a way that helped you win. I think one thing that's forgotten about Carmelo's career is his impact right away. The year before Denver drafted Carmelo, they went 17 and 65. 17 and 65. They were horrible. Boo boo. Trash. Doo doo. Toilet paper. Straight cheeks. Like they were horrible. Carmelo comes in and they make the playoffs his rookie year. Go 43 and 39. You can make a strong argument that Carmelo should have won Rookie of the Year. Now, LeBron James won Rookie of the Year, so of course, looking at it now, you're not going to say, oh, it was a robbery, right? Again, you know, one of the most overused words in sports, but you can make a good argument. So, LeBron, his rookie year, averaged 20.9 points per game. Carmelo 21. So basically both were at 21 points per game. Now LeBron gave you 5.9 assists, so 6 assists. Carmelo wasn't giving you that many assists. He was only at 2.8, right? That wasn't his wasn't his ministry <laughs> giving assists out. That wasn't that wasn't his testimony. Um, but he was also giving you 6 rebounds, 6.1 rebounds for Carmelo, 5.5 rebounds for LeBron. Uh, they both weren't efficient as far as scoring wise their rookie years. And you also gotta remember in the early two thousands efficiency was different than it is now. But both guys definitely by today's standards weren't efficient as LeBron shot forty one percent 
and Carmelo was at 42%. So their stats were very, very similar. And Melo's team was better. LeBron didn't make the playoffs until his third year. So when you look at it that way, you can say Carmelo was the best rookie and one of the greatest draft classes of all time. And should have the Rookie of the Year trophy for one of the greatest draft classes ever. And he continued to win. There was never a point in Carmelo's prime where his team wasn't good. Now, they weren't great for the most part, but they were never trash. He made you a good team, right? When you had Carmelo Anthony, you knew we have a chance to win tonight. And it's not only that he scored the ball, it's the way in which he scored the ball. If he caught that ball in the mid post, either side of the floor, and they isolated and gave him room, you were at his mercy. When he was in that triple threat position where he could dribble, pass, or shoot, you had no chance to stop him. None. He was too strong. You know, being 6'7, you know, 235 pounds, quick first step. If you were quick enough to stay with his first step, he had counter moves. One move that I love, that I use when I play now, is when he would go strong to the left. The defender, if it's a good defender, may be quick enough to get over there. But as soon as you get over there to stop the left-hand drive, he spins around you. And because he's already at the mid-post, once he does that spin, he's at the rim. And you couldn't stop it. There's a great highlight that you might see on social media where he was with OKC at this point. So he's past his prime. Giannis is guarding him. He does that move and gets Giannis totally faked out. Giannis is five feet away from him at this point. But Giannis is so freakish, Greek freak, that he's able to recover and block the shot. But it just shows you the greatness of both players in that one play. The move that Carmelo is able to get off that you know is coming. You know he has that in his bag. But then if you try to stop the spin, he could drive right past you. He's strong enough to use his body, get to the baseline. And get that jumper or get that layup. If you back up off him on the jab step, that mid-range jumper was pure. Could shoot the three. Right? And as his career went on, he became more and more efficient. Uh, by year three, 05, 06, he's shooting 48% from the floor. Which again, in the early 2000s or mid-2000s at this point, Players weren't that efficient on a normal basis. Somebody shooting 48% today from the wing is like, oh, okay, that's what players do today because they're so much more skilled. But back then, to be able to shoot 48% from the floor on damn near 20 field goal attempts per game, that's crazy efficiency. Especially for someone who has such an ISO-heavy game. Dope. And then by year four, he's an all-star. Still shooting around the same clip. Shoot, by 06, 07, he's shooting 22 shots a game. Still at 48% from the floor. And I also love how his three-point shot improved as he got older as well. 
when he first got into the league was shooting below 30% on not that many attempts. And then you see it just slowly increase. So he's not someone who you can point to and say, oh, he didn't get better at his craft. He definitely got better at his craft. His craft was scoring. That's what he did. And that's a big part of basketball. He wasn't somebody who's going to get you, you know, seven assists a game. I think his high for assists was four. Yeah, 4.2 assists per game was his high. But that wasn't his job. His job was to put the ball in the basket. He did it at a very high clip. Now, some people will point to the lack of playoff success with Carmelo, right? Carmelo was able to get to the Western Conference Finals in the, that was the 08-09 season, I believe, where they lost to the Lakers in that series. He didn't have teams where you look back and say, oh, this team should have won more. The year that he made to the second round with the Knicks, it wasn't a team where you thought, oh, this team should have went to the Finals. The only way I can hold team success or lack of team success against a player is when that team should have done better. There's no team that you could point to where Melo was the star player and say, this team should have done better. Now, maybe that's part of Carmelo not being LeBron, not being Dwayne Wade. That's fine. To be the third best player in one of the greatest draft classes of all time, is nothing to sneeze at. That's fine. And if you really want to break down how good of a scorer he was, he's ninth all time in scoring, right? And this isn't just an accumulation thing, right? He was over 20 points a game for so many years from his rookie year all the way to 2016-17. So you're talking 13 years give you 20 plus points a game and then for most of that time doing it in a very efficient way getting up to at one point 49 percent from the floor when in Denver so you talk about Carmelo in Denver from 0506 to when he got traded you're talking about somebody scoring 24, 25, upwards of 28 points a game. Shooting 18, 19, 20, even up to 22 shots a game. And when he shot more shots, he came more efficient. A lot of times people will think that automatically when you shoot more shots, you're going to become less efficient. It depends on the player. And he was able to become more efficient with more responsibility as his career went on. And then with the Knicks, you saw him as absolute prime, right? And he had some very memorable moments in those years. And one of the conversations that we've seen now, before I get to him being knife all time and scoring, should his jersey be retired in Denver, in New York? Carmelo is an all-time great, deserves to be top 75, first battle Hall of Famer. But when it comes to a jersey retirement, I can't say that he should have his jersey retired. He was great for Denver. 
definitely the second best player in Nuggets history. And I get that you can retire a number and still have somebody else wear it. But there is a player who's better than him in Nuggets history who just led his team to the NBA Finals for the first time in franchise history named Nikola Jokic who wears the same number that Carmelo wore in Denver. And the way that he exited Denver, I can see why that number wasn't one that was one that people understood not to wear. There's been some numbers that are retired, but players knew like, oh, this player's number is going to be retired soon or will be, so you can't wear it. Like, Allen Iverson in Philly, people knew not to wear his number even before it was retired, even because they knew what he meant to Philadelphia. With Denver, Carmelo was definitely important. I mentioned his impact right away, but was he there long enough to say that he was that guy there. Got him to Western Conference Finals. I get that. And he made it past the first round one time with them. But I don't think he retired his number. Especially with Nikola Jokic wearing the same number. And already being better than Carmelo. Excuse me, Carmelo Anthony. With the Knicks... He wasn't there long enough to retire his number. And if you're only there for, let's see here, he got there the second half of the 2010-2011 season and played there until the 2016-17 season. So you're talking about, you know, a good six seasons. But that's not long enough to say this person's number should be retired, especially if he only got you past the first round once. It's not like with a Kevin Garnett in Minnesota. They only got past the first round once, but he was there a decade plus and was clearly the biggest star in that franchise's history. Same thing with a Dominique Wilkins. Dominique Wilkins only got past, only got to the second round, never got to the conference finals. But he is Atlanta. He's the Atlanta Hawks, right? Trey Young may take over that mantle as that star if he stays there long enough. But you think Atlanta, you think Dominique Wilkins. That's why he has a statue. That's why his number is retired. Carmelo, he may be a Nick for life because they say once Nick, always a Nick. But he's not somebody who, when you think of the Knicks, you think Carmelo Anthony. You still think Patrick Ewing. You still think, if you go way back, Willis Reed and those guys. Carmelo, he's somebody who comes up in the history of it. He has his moments. We all remember the game against Chicago. I was at a brunch when he went crazy against the Bulls and hit those two threes to close out the game. We remember those moments, but it's not retirement jersey worthy. But just because his number won't be retired shouldn't be looked at as a negative on his career. It's just different today, right? Uh, with players today, they don't stay with those teams as long for the most part. So it's going to be hard to retire those numbers unless they win championships or they went to multiple finals, something like that. Like with LeBron in Miami, only there for years, but if they retired his number, it makes sense. They went to the finals four straight times, won two championships. Now, when it comes to Carmelo, as far as a scorer, one of the best scorers ever. When it comes to the way in which he scored, 
which made other players, you know, just be in awe of him. And also the efficiency, which I talked about when he really got into his prime years in Denver. But also, ninth all-time in scoring. 28,289 points. And he's going to be top 10 for a while. It shows you really how much he did in his career. So he's ninth all-time. KD, Kevin Durant, right now is at 26,842. So, not that good at math, but approximately, you know, about 1,400 behind Carmelo. If he's healthy for most of the next season, he should pass up Carmelo. But then, when you look after that, Carmelo could still be in the top 10 for quite some time. James Harden's at 24,000. And he's not scoring at the same pace that he used to. So, if he plays for another four or five years, he may pass him up. Russell Westbrook's also at 24,457. Not scoring at the same pace that he used to. It could take him four or five years to pass up Melo. Not guaranteed. Then you go further down the list, Steph Curry. As great as he is, he's only at 21,000 points. 21,712 points. It would take him... He would have to score at the same pace that he's scoring at now. He's 35 years old. He would have to still be scoring at that same pace at 39, 40 to pass up Carmelo. So when it comes to Carmelo's overall legacy, I would say he is the definition of a bucket. When you think of somebody being called a bucket, Carmelo Anthony's in that conversation of greatest scorer of all time. Couldn't stop him when he was going. When he gets going... We all remember the 60-point game for the Knicks. Like, he's somebody who had it all from a scoring standpoint. There was no weakness in his game scoring-wise. And also was a very good rebounder. Like, he had games where he could take over on the boards, offensively, defensively. Wasn't the best one-on-one -on -one defender. But you weren't going to outscore him. There was very few players that if he matched up against them, you were worried about Carmelo getting outscored. Very few. So when you think about Carmelo Anthony, think about one of the best bucket getters of all time. And it's going to be top 10 in scoring for a very, very long time. So salute to you. Great career. The third best player in, I would say, the third best draft class of all time, Carmelo Anthony. We're going to take a quick music break. When we come back, talk about the Denver Nuggets getting into the NBA Finals and the Heat being up 3-1. Crazy. Crazy.
Welcome back to The Real Deal with Damian Adams. Hopefully you enjoyed that music break. So now let's get into the current NBA and where we're at. Right now the Nuggets have already punched their ticket to the NBA Finals after sweeping the Los Angeles Lakers. The Heat are up 3-1 on the Boston Celtics. Celtics won game four to avoid the sweep. But to be honest with you, I do not see them making it a series. I don't see this as the first time in history we're going to see a team come back from 3-0. The Heat, you know, had a bad game, a lot more turnovers than usual in game four. And, you know, Tatum definitely, you know, picked up his game and showed up in a major way. But I just don't see it happening, even in Boston, after Heat winning game five. But watching these playoffs... And this season in general made me think about a bigger macro thing. The personality of your star player is so important. Now, we've had examples of this in the past where you saw the personality of the star player and how it trickled down, how it allowed the coach to be who he is, right? Think about someone like Tim Duncan. Low maintenance, do whatever it takes to win, coachable. That made Greg Popovich's job so much easier. And one of the reasons we think of Pop as one of the greatest coaches of all time is because he had a player like Tim Duncan who set that tone of, or allowed him to set that tone of, no one's bigger than the team. No matter how great you are, Tim Duncan's considered the greatest power forward of all time. Or one of the greatest big men of all time if you don't consider him a power forward. And still was able to be coached. If he messed up, 
Pop could chew him out the same way he can chew out a Tony Parker, the same way he can chew out a Mount Ginobili, a Kawhi Leonard, right? When you look at this year, the personality of the star player trickles down to the team in such a major way. Look at the Memphis Grizzlies. Talented squad, right? When you have a big three of John Morant, Jaron Jackson Jr., and Desmond Bain, you're cooking with grease. Like You're like, okay, this is a squad. I can build around this. But then when you look at the personality of your star, John Morant, erratic, making the same mistakes more than once, not willing, or I should say, seems like he's not willingly taking accountability. Look at the Grizzlies, same mistakes over and over again. You come into the playoffs, seems like they're not ready for that moment. The same way John Moran seems like he's not ready to be a star in the NBA. Like it came on too fast. Which, he's 23 years old. I'm not criticizing him for that. But seems like he's not ready for that responsibility. To be a franchise guy. To be one of the faces of Nike. To have all these things bestowed upon him. Grizzlies. We're not ready to be one of the best teams in the NBA, to be a championship contender, to be a team that's on national TV week in and week out. That trickles down from John Morant. Talking all the noise but not being able to back it up from John Morant to Dylan Brooks. It trickles down. And they were front runners who couldn't handle once they fell behind. We saw the Lakers series, getting blown out twice by the Lakers in that series. They couldn't handle the adversity that trickles down from your star. Look at the Denver Nuggets, Nikola Jokic, whatever it takes to win, playing in the system, passing the ball, pushing it on fast breaks. The rest of the team picks that up. Aaron Gordon, who when he was in Orlando was somebody who wanted to be the star or Orlando thought he could be when he was drafted. Couldn't do that. He wasn't a guy you could run your offense through. Gets there, understands his role. I'm going to shoot these threes and I'm open. I'm going to dive to the basket. If I have a mismatch, I'll take advantage then. But I know what my role is. Jamal Murray. He knows that he has the ability to take games over. We've seen it. Right? We've seen it in the Lakers series. But he follows the lead of Joker being unselfish. Running those plays. He's not trying to ISO. They're trying to run these sets. They have great plays they run. I love the one where they run a pin down where Jamal Murray goes down first. Another player comes to run a pin down on him. And then Jamal Murray runs off of that pin down around Jokic by the top of the key. And forces you to switch on that action. Or you can give up open three. If you switch it and you don't have somebody helping the helper, Nikola Jokic is going to be open for a jump shot or the roll to the basket. And it all starts off of playing the right way, which Nikola Jokic is going to do. And Nikola Jokic also is no punk. Right? So he combines being the joker, having that laid back feel of 
That along with not being a punk, not backing down, along with playing the right way, being willing to pass, rebound, shoot, whatever's needed to win, he's going to do. And you see the rest of the team doing that. KCP, somebody who I think is underrated as far as how good he really is. And it's taking the role of, I'm going to shoot these threes, I'm going to play defense, and I might get some pull-up twos every once in a while off of pick and rolls and stuff like that. I'm going to play my role. Michael Porter Jr., on a lot of teams, he's a star. Or he's being developed to be a star on a lot of teams. He's the third guy. Fourth guy in some games. But he's going to shoot some threes. He's become a better defender. And all trickles down from the personality of your star. Jimmy Butler got that dog in him, right? That trickles down. Now, for some reason, we didn't see it trickle down during the regular season with Miami. But we know with Jimmy Butler, he's a different player in the playoffs. And even in games where he hasn't been special, we've seen other players feed off of his energy and step up and show that dog. Gabe Vinson has had special moments, special games, showing that dog. Where did this version of Caleb Martin come from that we've seen in this Boston series? He's been amazing, showing that he has that dog in him. Bam Adebayo. He's been somebody who we've been waiting to see take that next step. And I don't think he'll ever be a consistent 25-point-a-game guy. But he's had moments in these playoffs where you see him have damn near 20 points and 20 rebounds. Kyle Lowry's had moments. He's no longer going to have full-on games where he can give you 30 points and go crazy, but he'll have spurts. Kevin Love will give you spurts. And everybody's trickling down off of Jimmy Butler being that dog. Now, Jimmy Butler, sometimes that dog can be a little too much and bite you. We've seen that when it came to the Timberwolves and maybe in Philadelphia. That's why those teams were ready for him to move on. But with the Heat, because of their culture, they're able to withstand that. We saw it last year, him getting an argument with the coach and be ready to fight. But their culture... We make fun of heat culture, but obviously it's a real thing. Having you Don Haslam there is a real thing. And that personality of that star player trickles down in a major way. Now, with the Lakers, who were eliminated, you know, whenever a team is eliminated, I talk about what they can do to get better. It's hard with them because they have a two-headed snake at the top, right? LeBron and AD shared our responsibility. LeBron's in year 20. AD should be the top guy, but AD has had some monster playoff games, but also had some games where he didn't show up. Inconsistent. Lakers this year, for the most part, were inconsistent. They made some trades. You got to give Rob Palenka all the credit in the world for the moves he made. Which definitely made them better. But when it came to a team like Denver, they just weren't on that level. Uh, you got to give LeBron credit in game four. Definitely gave it his all. One of the best halves of basketball you're ever going to see in the first half. But ran out of gas. And no one stepped up. 
Anthony Davis has to be there to step up. He has to be there in that moment and step up and say, I'm the guy now. Let's go. And he didn't. Now, that's tough because you're asking a lot of him. And moments where he's guarding Jokic. It's a lot to ask him to guard Jokic and to give you 25 points. And 18 rebounds, right? Now, I do think that Darvinham showed himself to be a good coach. He just didn't have the horses to keep up with Denver, with Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray playing out of his mind, Michael Porter Jr. having his moments, Aaron Gordon being a very good defender along with doing the things that he does offensively. So you just got to give the Nuggets all credit in the world. They were the best team in the Western Conference all year long. The Western Conference we thought was going to be this wild ride, which for the most part it was, right? When you look at the fact that we had a 6 and 7 seed in the second round playing against each other, that's a little wild. But at the end of the day, the one seed was the one who was dominant. They went to 6 with Phoenix, but it didn't seem like they were really in danger of losing that series. Went 5 against Minnesota. Game four, Anthony Edwards went crazy, got him one. Took care of the Lakers in four games. They were a true dominant one seed. The Eastern Conference, which we thought was going to be chalk, turned out to be the wild conference. You had the five beat the four in the first round with the Knicks beating the Cavs. You had the craziness of the Heat beating the Bucks. The only series that was really just straight up chalk was Philly and Brooklyn. Brooklyn, honestly, was only a six seed because of early in the year when they had Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, those guys, the lead they were able to build up over the seven and eight seeds at that point. But they were truly an eight seed type of team that happened to be a six seed. So because of that, the Eastern Conference was the more unpredictable conference, which we thought the West was going to be. And I love this. I love these playoffs being this wild. Now, I don't want to jump the gun and disrespect Boston because they still are alive. They still have a chance. But most likely we're getting Nuggets heat. Right? And that's a very interesting series. Now, I know it's not going to be as popular as Lakers Celtics or Lakers heat. But basketball-wise, I'm super excited to see what's going to happen here. you got two great coaches, great coaches in this one. And I can't wait to see what Miami tries to do to counter what advantages Denver has. They don't really have an answer for, sorry about the music going silent on me right there. But they don't really have an answer for someone like Jokic, right? Because you think about their starting center being Bam Adebayo, who's pretty much the same size as Aaron Gordon, who's the power forward for Denver. So Denver has a clear size advantage. They're going to have a clear rebounding advantage. But the Heat have that dog in them. So they're going to find a way. Eric Spolster is going to find a way to make it difficult. They're going to find a way to make Denver have to make some adjustments. But... Just off rip, Nikola Jokic should have a monster series just off his size and skill advantage. Don't have any answer to stop him. You're going to have to double. Once you double, he's surrounded by people who can shoot, who can cut, 
very high basketball IQs. They're not going to make the mistakes that Boston has. And that's the thing. Miami's been winning, of course, because Jimmy Butler's been a monster, but also they play mistake-free basketball. They didn't in Game 4, but for the most part, they've been playing mistake-free basketball, capitalizing on the mistakes of the team. And they've been improved as a shooting team, but even in the Knicks series, their shooting wasn't great, but they were able to capitalize off of the lack of consistency from Julius Randle and R.J. Barrett and the guys around Jalen Brunson. When it comes to Denver, you're not going to get a lack of consistency from the supporting cast around Jokic. Jamal Murray can have his up and down moments for sure. But what I saw in this Lakers series was him take a step forward in showing that I'm that dude. This wasn't just a bubble thing. When I'm healthy, this is me. And I think he's going to continue to show it in the finals. Now, for the Heat, do they put Jimmy Butler on him? Do you tax him with that responsibility? If you put Jimmy Butler on him, who do you put on Michael Porter Jr.? Because the thing with Michael Porter Jr. is he doesn't have really have a bag per se. But because he's 6'10", with a super silky jumper, he doesn't need it. Because most people at his position that he's matched up against are going to be too small to really affect his shot. You've seen it in the Lakers series. There are certain times where the defender's right there in his airspace. He doesn't see him. He just shoots it over him. It doesn't matter. So Jimmy Butler's not there to make Michael Porter Jr. Michael Porter Jr. Excuse me, uncomfortable. He's on Jamal Murray. Does that wear down Jimmy Butler? Now we know Jimmy Butler is amazing and has incredible stamina. But running around all those screens and some of the actions that I described earlier for Denver could wear him down. I don't want to get too ahead of myself. Of course, I'm gonna do a full preview. I'll try to get a guest on to do a full NBA Finals preview on the next episode because we got some time between these series. So we'll definitely have an episode in between. Hopefully you enjoyed today's episode, man. I really enjoyed this. You know, felt like I was talking that talk today, you know. So if you enjoyed this episode, please let me know. If you think I could do some things differently, I will accept that as well. Please let me know. Please take the time, if you're listening on Spotify, to write a little comment about the episode. Let me know what you think. I would truly appreciate it. Uh, follow me on social media at the Real Deal WDA. And until next time, go real or go home.